Welcome to the Lion's Roar Dharma Center podcast from Dona Darge Temple. This public talk was recorded during a regularly scheduled Sunday morning service. I'm happy to give a few words of introduction uh, this morning um, to Justin Altschuler, uh, my uh, personal physician. Um, he's going to be um, talking about... Uh, Chronic Illness and Mindfulness, uh, and he'll be giving uh, uh, talk until about noon, then we'll take a, a short break, and we'll have time for questions and answers and discussion and a short meditation, and we'll end at 12.30, and then people are free to go uh, to the community dojo and have some snacks. I think we have a lot of snacks today. So I hope people brought their appetite. Mm. So uh, Lion's Roar Dharma Center uh, is the, uh, the founding uh, organization for Dona Darge Temple. Lion's Roar means uh, to make, uh, to proclaim liberating loving truth. Uh, so that's our mission here. Uh, the Buddhas do not uh, wash away sins with water. The Buddhas do not uh, heal by laying on of hands. The Buddhas do not um, transfer realizations. The Buddhas just teach. That's important, right? So that means we have to be students. To uh, uh, we're, we're not magicians. <clears throat> A big part of Dharma, however, is healing, is uh, teaching people how to lead uh, a lifestyle that promotes healing and loving, and how to work with illness and sickness. So the Buddha was called the great physician. And um, uh, healing and medicine uh, has always been a huge part of uh, practice in India and Tibet and in Buddhist countries. <clears throat> Some people might remember uh, Dr. Kalsang was here, was it last year or two years ago? Last year, you know. and uh, She's... Uh, volunteered to come back again, so uh, let's make aspirations for this. So I'm very interested in having uh, a series of talks by uh, you know, physicians and healers uh, from different perspectives uh, for our benefit. It's challenging, as people know, to do uh, uh, Dharma in America at this time. Uh, the mission here is to have both sacred and secular Dharma practice. Sacred Dharma is uh, the lineage dharma and the mythology and the uh, altered states of mind and the transformations that have been preserved for uh, thousands of years in India and Tibet and in Asia. And we, so we have mantras and vows and uh, rituals that preserve uh, uh, that presentation. But we also have contemporary mindfulness uh, disciplines that have evolved. We have contemporary psychology and in medicine that, even though it doesn't, might not use the same uh, ways of speaking, uh, it's all going towards healing. So it's absolutely necessary that we find a balance between uh, these two ways or of knowing. So we we want to be in the middle. <laughs> that's that's why I call uh, our group psychotherapy practice and healing practice uh, middle way health. Today, I'm really delighted that um, uh, 
many of the people that I know and love are here today uh, that are also in the healing profession. Sabrina's here, wonderful Kaiser nurse. I will say nice things about Kaiser today. <laughs> uh, Sarah Altschul is here. Uh, she's a psychiatrist and will be joining uh, Midway Health. Uh, I'm just delighted. I, I feel so much better having uh, her as part of the group. I believe strongly that psychology uh, and, and medicine and social work uh, should go together. Uh, so uh, I'm delighted that um, you know, we're building that up. Um, it's nice to see... Uh, uh, where's, where's Andrew? Yes. After being at a cast party all night, you're here. That's, that's nice. Uh, uh, Andrew's our psychologist at um, Middleway Health. So uh, I really want to have the balance between different ways of knowing and different ways of healing. That makes sense, right? We must have it. I, I don't want to go over to either extreme. We want to uh, be free of extreme views, as the Buddha said. I am free of views. I'm just here to help. So um, we have uh, time after the break, and uh, maybe we have even some time to visit uh, afterwards. Uh, So I hope people can stay after the talk and discussion if they'd like also. Yeah. Oh, and here's Colleen. Yeah, thank you for coming. This is traditional, and Sarah J., if you show up at a at an intimate kind of small group like this, you get called out. That's, that's <laughs> traditional. So I'm just being traditional that way. Didn't mean to put you on the spot. So, uh, uh, so uh, we'll, take a, I'll, we'll take a break around noon, and please come back. And this is all up to Dr. Altschuler now. Do you have your mic, or no, do you need mine? Yes? yes? Yes, there we go. Okay. Can I stand and walk around? Yeah, sure. Okay. Sorry, I, I do better when I'm walking and standing. Um, so thank you for the introduction. Um, don't mean to be mean, but a lot of what he said kind of stole my thunder, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, what I would like to do is actually start with a story. And um, about three or four years ago, I became the medical director for an organization that works with children and families affected by type 1 diabetes. And the the main part of kind of what we do is we run a camp up in the Sierras that lasts all summer. Camp's been around for 80 plus years. The medical directors of it are, at least in my mind, kind of giants in the field. And I felt a lot of trepidation sort of stepping into that because I felt like there was very, very large shoes to step into. And the camp itself is really magical. And in fact, we have a term for it. We call it the bearskin magic because there's sort of this sense there of how special and how wonderful the place is. And I felt a lot of, um, a lot of pressure to make sure that 
that magic didn't disappear. And so I sort of put on my thinking cap and I thought, well, what is it that makes this place so special? And, and the things that I took out of that thought process that um, have actually kind of shaped a lot of how I view medicine and, and how I view chronic illness and how I think about this. And that's what I'd like to talk about. And so at camp, and then sort of applied more broadly to chronic illness, I've come to kind of believe that there are three things that are important to manage chronic illness well. And those three things which we're going to go through are knowledge, community, and resiliency. And what's interesting to me as I was thinking about the talk today, they actually map quite well onto three jewels of Buddhism, of Dharma, Buddha, and Sangha. So when I talk about knowledge, this is really sort of specific to the illness that we're talking about. So this was sort of thought about in terms of type 1 diabetes. But if you think about your own health problems that you struggle with, or those health problems that people that you love and care about struggle with, there are a lot of things in that disease specifically that you have to know to manage it well. So part of that might be, say, when to take a medication. If we're talking about, say, high blood pressure, it might mean how to eat. If we are talking about chronic pain, it might mean knowing how to exercise. If we're talking about depression, it might be to exercise and eat and sleep, right? And you can kind of think for yourself about the things that you have struggled with when it comes to health, that there are things that you know that you need to do in order to take care of yourself. Everyone on board with that? Does that make sense? Okay. And then, you know, if you think about this, and maybe it's not just yourself, but you're thinking about other people that you have watched as well, um, you might have seen that over time, you go through periods of your life where you're doing better taking care of this, right? And then you go through periods of life where you're not doing as well taking care of it. And what's really interesting to me is that particularly in, in Western medicine, when you go to the doctor, you might say, you know, doc, like I've kind of fallen off the bandwagon about this. And they'll say, well, you need to do X, Y, and Z. And, and you kind of nod, but you actually know that, right? There's oftentimes, I mean, there's, there's sort of the initial knowledge that you need to learn, but, but after that, once you've learned that, it's not like you really forget it, right? And yet, we often approach this as, oh, I've, I've somehow forgotten that I need to exercise in the morning, or I've forgotten that I need to do the, you know, do, do the things that I need to do. I forgot I need to take my, my medication at night. And that doesn't actually make much sense, right? So... Why is it that sometimes we're able to do well in, take, in doing the things that we need to do to take care of ourselves and other times we're not? And the answer is, quite frankly, because we're human and we change over time, right? Um, but, but that sort of understanding, I think, is, is what has made me think about this a little bit more broadly and, and sort of led to the second piece of what I will kind of call this, this, these three pillars or this triumvirate, which is, which is community. And, you know, different, uh, 
chronic conditions are different, right? And some of them are, you know, kind of a hassle, but, but not that big of a deal where you can pretty effectively treat it by just taking a pill at night and forgetting about it. But many chronic conditions, many things that we struggle with, are not quite that simple. And they actually require a lot of engagement on our part. And oftentimes, if you think for yourself, or again, you think about the people that you know, th these things that are difficult, these, these medical conditions that are, that are challenging, they're also often very isolating. Because the things that you struggle with are not actually the same things that the next person does. And not only are they often somewhat isolating, but they kind of make you feel lonely because you don't actually have a great way of communicating them. Does this make sense? Okay. And so part of what I recognized at camp, and then I, I think is, is just true much more broadly, is that we actually need community in order to manage conditions well over the long term. And and that community can come in a lot of forms, right? So that can come, at camp it comes with other people with type 1. It can come from places like this. It can come from sports teams that you play on. But, but there needs to be some community that, that sense of other people care about me. That, that other people are there for me. And that when things get lousy, because it's not a question of if, right? It's a question of when that other people are there to help me get back up again. And so what I've seen with people that, that do well managing chronic health conditions is that they're not lonely. They actually have friends. And, and I think what's interesting to me is that it has much less to do with how many. This is not a quantity. This is, this is not a who has more, right? This is, do you have people that are there for you. My wife likes to say, calls it the, 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 the middle of the night test. Do you have three people in the middle of the night that you can call if something goes south? Right? And I think it's a great, I think it's a great test. Right? Because it doesn't have, you don't have to have 20, but you have to have a few that are there for you when you fall down. And that, that sense of having others that are there for us allows us to get through the difficult parts. It allows us to bear burdens that oftentimes are much bigger than one person alone can carry. And it allows us to stay on track and to kind of keep us on the right path when we start to go one way or the other, right? So if you think about, call it exercise, and you haven't been to the gym or you haven't done your walk for a week, but you have a community that's actually there waiting for you, they call you up and they say, hey, where have you been? Right? Well, guess what? Over the long term, that's actually what drives health. Okay. So knowledge, community, and resiliency. And resiliency, I think, is, is particularly sort of well-suited to this, um, this setting. Um, but resiliency is something, is basically what I talk about is the ability to, to bounce back from adversity. Okay. So I will tell a story with this, which again, I'm, I'm actually not very original. I tend to just take other people's ideas and repackage them and then represent them. Um, so the story is, call it a monk. Um, so there's a person on the road and they're, they're walking the road and they keep cutting their feet on the sharp rocks in the road. And 
as they're doing this, you know, their feet get bloody and they're not making very much progress and it starts to get frustrating. This person's a compassionate person and they start to, they realize, hey, if I'm, if I'm cutting my feet on these sharp rocks, other people probably are as well. And so this person endeavors to make it their mission to cover the sharp rocks in the road with leather so that as they're walking, they're not cutting their feet and other people, as they're walking, are also not cutting their feet. Sets out to do this person has wealth and buys leather and starts covering all the sharp rocks on the road. Does this for quite a while, but no matter how many sharp rocks they cover, there still seems to be more and their feet still seem to be getting cut. Bummer. So one day they're sitting by the side of the road and eating their lunch and a monk walks up and says, what are you doing? And they tell him about why they're covering the, the sharp rocks in the road. And, and the monk kind of says, okay, well, how's it going? And they say, well, honestly, not very good. You know, I've, I've spent years, I've covered thousands of sharp rocks with leather, but my feet still keep getting cut. And I assume the feet of my fellow travelers are still getting cut as well. And the monk kind of nods and says, don't you think it would be better to put leather on people's feet rather than to put leather on the world? And this is how I kind of view resiliency. There is nothing that I or anyone can do to make life, the road of life, be totally smooth. But what we can do is help you navigate those sharp rocks that get in the way. And I think that the reason this is so important when we think about health is that the reality is is that all of us have multiple priorities in our lives. Right? At any one time, we've got to get the kids to school, right? we've got to be at work. We, there's all these things that we're constantly juggling. And if everything else in life is not going well, if we're constantly cutting our feet on these sharp rocks, guess what? Most people do not then take the time to take care of themselves. And your health will suffer. And I've kind of seen this happen a lot, right? And so in order to be in a state of mind so that you can take, do the things that you know you need to do to take care of yourself, you have to be able to navigate the sharp rocks that come up. And there are a few things in particular um, that, can really, that can really help this. So one is we all tell ourselves, ourselves stories about why we're here or what we do, right? And those stories are often constructed from a set of facts, but the story can be very different even when the facts are the same. So the story can be, man, you know, no matter how hard I try, my blood pressure still seems to be high and I'm just super frustrated because I don't know what to do about that. Or my chronic pain always seems to be getting worse, even though, um, you know, I've done everything I've been told to do. Or, um, you know, my anxiety is still there, even though I've taken the pill that was prescribed to me. And that fundamentally is, is kind of a bummer of a story, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of not something that's going to be real inspiring to get up again. But you can tell us yourself a different story about that. You can say, you know, I've been working really hard on this, and it hasn't worked out yet, but I just haven't found the right the right." combination of things for me. 
or you know, even though I've been working at this and it hasn't worked, I've got some more ideas to try. And so taking that story that we tell ourselves about things and shifting it is something that allows us to have more resiliency, more ability to navigate these sharp rocks. Community is a big one. So is another thing that builds on this, right? And you can sort of see how these things really tie together. So if you have a strong community, your ability to bounce back is greater. Let me pause there. How are we doing on time? Let me pause there and ask if there's questions or thoughts or maybe open it up to discussion and see what people have to say. Yeah. We went to Bearskin Meadows for years. Oh, you did? <laughs> yes. I knew there was a reason I had to be here. <laughs> <laughs> With my stepdaughter, who's type, type 1 diabetic. Okay. And it's a magical, magical place, and I love Dr. Mary. And I'm so grateful that you're there. Um, yes. Because it is really a, a very important place. And, um, and it's, a, it's an incredible community. It's, it's kind of a sangha for those kids who can be really normal in, in, in when they're feeling not normal most of the time. Oh, good. <laughs> so, and I think that that's actually a really interesting thing. So, one of the things about camp is that it is. So, there's a there's a staff member at camp who um, who's been there for more than forty years, and he actually doesn't have diabetes. And you know, we've asked him. We said, Uncle Rich, like, why is it that you keep coming back? And he says, Well, at Bearskin people act the way they're supposed to act in the rest of the world. <laughs> and I think it's really interesting because one of the things that is so core to the place is this, this real sort of, I mean, for lack of a better word, this sort of radical acceptance of people where they are, right? And that really builds this community and this sense mm-hmm. of, of people being okay there, right? And so I think a lot of what what our work in sort of daily life can be is how do we take that sense of accepting people where they are, not maybe where you'd like them to be or where they would like to be, right? But, but taking them where they are and building community around that. that I'm very touched that <laughs> you have been to Bearskin. That's part of the reason I was excited to come. (laughs) But I think it's also why, I mean, I think what's interesting to me about it is, so there's a whole, um, there's a whole body of emerging literature on loneliness and the effects of loneliness on health conditions. And one of the things that has come out of this is that loneliness is probably worse than well, I don't know if I'd say cigarette smoking, but that was where I was going to go. But, but strictly from sort of an epidemiological perspective, loneliness is probably as dangerous as smoking cigarettes in terms of health. And they've linked this to all kinds of different health conditions. So the things that you would expect, like anxiety and depression, yep, that's certainly the case, right? But also things like heart disease, cancer, um, and, and it turns out that if you look at someone who's maybe, I think it was, I don't, I'm not exactly sure on this, but 
roughly 65 years, one of the best predictors of mortality was are you lonely? Not how many medications you took, not how many health problems you have, but are you lonely? And to me, that's fascinating, right? And there's, I mean, there's, there's actually a fair amount of work that's starting to be done to sort of work out the biological me mechanisms for why that is. Um, but but the, the guy that directs that study has a saying that is, that, and that's loneliness is lethal. And I think it's really true. And so, yeah, I mean, I think the, the more, and, and, and so then the one other thing that I would sort of say about community, right, is that you can never have too much of it, right? And I think one of the things that's very challenging today is that we have, you know, it used to be that we would have several different communities that we were a part of, right? We'd have a religious community, we'd have our neighborhood, we might have a sports team, we'd have work, we'd have our family. A and most people don't have as many of those anymore, right? They have maybe one or two. But yeah, I think you're, I mean, yes, I think it's, you're totally right. Thank you for being here. Um, I'm curious about the uh, way that people identify with their condition, conditions, um, the stories that they tell themselves about who they are as a result of it, um, with it, its chronicity, um, you know, it's just going to be this progressive arc of, of, you know, I'm just stuck with this, and it becomes kind of how they see themselves in the world, if you, you know. So I'm just wondering how do you work with that with them, how do you help them so it's not the totality of who they are? Yeah, it's a <laughs> I, I would love to know how. <laughs> no, so it's a great question. Um, it's a great question. And I, I think that there are um, I think that there are two sort of extremes that people tend to navigate towards and the answer I think tends to lie in the middle. So I think I'm talking much more now about health conditions that are really pretty severe, right? So things that, that really are quite disruptive to people's lives rather than more of kind of an annoyance, right? And I think one, one place that, that people often go with this is that I don't want to know it. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to see it. I don't want to hear it. I just, I want it to go away, right? And the reality is, is that's not going to happen. And that tends not to work very well because it is there. And if you don't deal with it, it tends to get worse. The other extreme, which I actually think is often over the long term equally challenging, is that they totally become defined by it, right? And their identity becomes, I am a cancer survivor 
I am someone with type 1, I am someone with Crohn's disease, whatever it is, right? I am, a, I am someone with depression, I have PTSD. And, and pretty much everything in their orbit kind of revolves around that, right? And, and that actually, I don't think, works very well either over the long haul. And so I, I think that the goal, or how I think about working with people about this, is, is how do you integrate that into their sense of self without letting it define their sense of self? So there's an, there needs to be an acknowledgement that, like, yes, this is a part of me, right? And in fact, who I am is shaped pretty deeply by this, just like we're all shaped by different things, but this, in fact, shapes me pretty deeply, right? Um, but this is not the only thing that I am. And while this shapes who I am and informs the decisions that I make, it's not the only thing that shapes who I am or shapes the decisions that I make. And so... The question really, bec- I think that the question becomes is how do, you, how do you keep it in perspective that yes, this is, this is there, but no, it doesn't have to be everything. So I think that that's, that's part of it. And then I think that another part of it is not allowing that to sort of become more than it should be, right? So, which I guess is actually a different way of saying yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. I don't know if I've thought of it. I mean, I think, I think, I think that that's, that is, I, I, I would call it mostly a process of like identity integration rather than identity rejection <laughs> or identity um, sort of taking over, right? Do you have, does anyone else have thoughts on that? It's a great question. Do you have, do you have thoughts on it? Yeah. Well, so along those lines, you know, I understand what you're saying. It's important not to identify, but then if you create a camp with a bunch of kids with type 1 diabetes, yeah. how do you teach them to, be, to realize that how much more they are than just that while also allowing them to um, you know, enjoy the camaraderie of, of seeing other kids that are just like them? I mean, kind of, isn't that kind of a balance? Right it, is, it is. I think... I, I think what happens is we have, you know, we have so many people there that are so isolated the rest of the year that it really becomes sort of this place where, well, no. So, so it really becomes sort of this place where they, because, because it's not even on the table anymore, it sort of just melts away. And, and that seems, it seems kind of counterintuitive, but, um, you know, we'll often, we'll, we'll often have counselors up there who don't have type 1. And they'll say, well, I f- you know, normally I feel fine, but here I feel left out. <laughs> right? Because, because that is often, that is a huge part of kind of what the community is. And so at camp, I think it's actually kind of the opposite, where kids tend to really realize that, like, this does not limit me. Because they'll have these hang-ups about, oh, I can't do this or I can't do that. And then they'll see someone else with type 1 that's doing that. And they'll be like, well, if they're doing it, right? Because the messaging they get in the rest of the world is yes, no, yes, no, right? Whereas there, it's like yes, right? And so I think that what, what they see is, oh, I, can, you know, I, I can't do this or I can't do that because of diabetes. But there you can. And so if you can there, why can't you somewhere else? And, and I think that was actually, I mean, that is actually pretty fundamental to sort of how the camp was founded. So, you know, the camp was founded... 18 years after insulin was discovered. <laughs> and 
I mean, the disease was an entirely different animal back then. And, you know, the docs that started it, like people th said that they were, I mean, crazy for taking a bunch of invalids up to the mountains, right? And, of course, they did very well. Um, but I think that that's, does that answer the question? Yeah. Okay. Thank you for coming. Um, quick question. Uh, how do you keep the kids, um, like, to actually keep the insights that they have about, you know, being able to do those things that they usually would think that they uh, wouldn't be able to do? They get that insight at the camp. How do they keep that insight outside of the camp to become more like a realization? Another good, this is, this is a group with really good questions. <laughs> um, so part of it, I think, is repetition, right? So we love to have kids come back year over year, right? Because none of us, regardless of what we're talking about, like learn something and then always remember it, right? And it takes, it takes a practice to become skilled at something and to, to sort of integrate something, right? And this is true about that. It's true about meditation. It's tr I mean, it's true about anything, right? Like most things that are difficult and worth doing are a practice rather than, you know, a, a sudden insight that you, that you never sort of go back on. So I think that that's one piece. Um, a huge amount of it is that they make friends at camp, right? And then they see those friends throughout the year. And so that helps to sort of sustain that throughout the year. Um, the organization has made a lot of effort over the past 10 or 15 years to build additional programs throughout the year that people can come to to sort of sustain that, right? I would say a lot of what, you know, a lot of the folks that I take care of are also camp people, right? And a lot of what I do when I see people in the office is to try and remind them of that and sustain that, right? Um, and then there's like, I mean, I think that there's also like very sort of, I don't want to call it silly, but little things. So like when we, when we send the kids home, we give them a little glow star that we tell them to put on their, the ceiling of their room at home so that they can think about the stars that they saw at camp and be reminded of it, right? And it's a, I mean, it's, it's a small thing. I very much agree. I will admit that. But I think when we're talking about any of these things, right, you need reminders. You need, you need other people in other ways of sort of staying engaged with, with these things that tend to sort of slide to the, to the back seat, right? And I mean, I would even say, again, if we're going to sort of translate between medicine and, and practice here, right, like you need reminders to sit every day. Right? You need reminders to be mindful in the moment. Right? And how do you get those with a practice like this? Right? Well, part of it is you come, right? and that helps. Part of it is you might have a little altar set up at home. Right? But there's all different ways of sort of trying to build into your life and into your routine these reminders of what you need to be doing and how do you sustain those, those insights that you get every once in a while. 
forward. Earlier, I was actually just reminded of the uh, Victor Franklin's notion that I was reminded earlier about Victor Frankl's notion that uh, humans are meaning-seeking creatures, and it struck struck me that you know this uh, his notion is that we can derive a lot of meaning out of suffering and the causes of suffering, and that what like the camp and other activities what you're trying to talk about here seems like a um, different ways of talking about transmuting pain, suffering, darkness into something that's more positive. You know, we're going to derive meaning out of it one way or the other. The stories right. that we tell, something, something is going to come out of it. And maybe we can guide people towards, you know, seeing the meaning, the, the greater sort of good that can come out of these, these sources of suffering. Yeah, I think it's a great point. And, and I think that what a lot of what, so it's a, it's a fantastic point. And I think you're actually articulating kind of better than I was about what uh, what a lot of the point of trying to build resiliency is, right? So when we suffer, we have these stories that we often tell ourselves about that. And oftentimes those stories are either wrong or limited or unhelpful. <laughs> and you can pick which of those <laughs> you would prefer, right? Um, <clears throat> and... I think a lot of the work that I do with patients around chronic illnesses is how do you tell a different story about that, right? How do you change that story that is wrong or limited or unhelpful and turn it into a story that is perhaps much more meaningful and helpful? And so I think a lot of this is about how do you, how do you get the message from it that actually makes sense and works for you rather than maybe the message that you first took from it or that you were given about it, right? Um, <clears throat> and I, I sort of another example, so a, a, a very large part of my practice is working with patients with substance use disorders. And um, there are a ton of messages around particularly opiate use, but really any drug problem <laughs> that are pretty nasty, right? This is your fault. How could you do this to me? Like, this is all your, you know, and, and the joke is, right, you, you, you know, you, you walk into a room and like, okay, who wants to be an opiate addict? Put up your hand, right? Like, <laughs> like, this is not something that most people would choose, and yet there you are, right? And so a lot of, a lot of the work around this is transforming those, those narratives or those meanings that people originally derive from it that are often kind of problematic, into something um, that is perhaps much more productive, right? And so viewing the suffering or viewing the illness as a learning opportunity rather than, um, you know, rather than something that is an affliction, say. But yeah. But yeah. yeah. An experience instead of letting it consume me. So I personally suffer from depression and have most of my life. I grew up in a family where um, both parents suffered from depression and anxiety. And it was always just kind of assumed that I would also suffer from this. Um, in my young adult life, that came to light. And recently, it's the thing that has really helped me out of that is instead of feeling like, I am depressed. I am depression. It's like I own this depression. It's, it consumes me. 
until I just see this big black hole, and that's where I want to dwell. Instead of feeling like that, I am now saying I am experiencing depression right now. I'm experiencing anxiety, I'm, which I am right now. You can hear it in my voice. <laughs> I'm experiencing this. <laughs> um, it goes for all of my emotions. I'm experiencing anger right now. I'm experiencing annoyance with my kids or whatever. It doesn't mean that I own this, that I belong in this, that I, I now am consumed by it. It's because experiences pass. I know that feelings pass. Right. I know that these, these, I don't have to, to own it. It doesn't have to be my entire identity. It becomes something I'm just experiencing, and it lets me know that there is a light at the end of the tunnel, and eventually I will get out of that again. Yeah. It's a, it's, a, it's a totally profound insight, and I think, um, so I often encourage a lot of my patients, regardless of what the medical problems they are working with, to meditate, right? Because one of the things that meditation can really cultivate is this ability to see your emotions without becoming consumed by them, or... Um, the, the way that I'll often talk about this in the office is that emotions are like the weather and feelings and thoughts are like the weather. They will change, right? And people often sort of look at me funny or think I'm a little bit out there when I start to say this, but, but I mean this really as just a observable fact, right? Like whatever you are feeling right now, whether it's awkward or anxious or happy, like you will not always feel that way, right? And like when we sort of say it like that, it's, it's obvious, <laughs> right? But when we're in it, we feel like it is always going to feel, I am always going to feel this way. This, this will never pass. And so using you know, your word of saying, of experiencing it rather than being consumed by it, I think is a great way, uh, is a great, it's great language to sort of put to that idea that, that you can have this stuff coming in and out of your mind or your body without necessarily becoming so wrapped up in it that it feel that it's that it's all consuming and it's never going to kind of get away from you, right? Absolutely. It, right. This it, is exactly right. And so a lot of times what becomes so difficult what what a lot of the work I think is in terms of helping people get through these difficult conditions is helping them start to realize this, right? And I think this is something where mindfulness practice has so much to offer, right? Because if you can recognize that, like, I hurt right now, but I'm not always going to hurt, it's suddenly much less scary, right? And, you know, I could give a whole separate talk about, you know, chronic pain in particular, but for most things, our, our emotions in our body are totally wrapped up with it, right? And so I'll have to, I mean, if you use blood pressure sort of as an example, like people will come in and they'll say, oh, you know, I was anxious about coming in today, doc. That's why my blood pressure is high, right? And I'll say, well, that's fine. But from sort of a cardiovascular disease perspective, it actually doesn't matter why your blood pressure is high. What matters is that it is high, right? And so if we can start to, if people can start to learn that like, oh, I'm feeling anxious, that's okay, right? Suddenly you don't get that big physiologic response to the anxiety. And we think, I mean, this is where at least the research is sort of pointing now, then you don't get the cardiovascular outcomes that are associated with that either, right? If we think about blood sugars with diabetes, and I guess this is just where my mind is right now, these are the conditions that I keep using <laughs> as examples, right? Like, like 
if you're really stressed, you get this big adrenaline dump, right? This big adrenaline dump drives blood, blood sugars up, right? Like this is your emotions literally driving your physiology. And one of the examples that I'll often use to patients to sort of talk about this is, you know, I'm kind of a red guy to begin with. And when I get embarrassed or anxious or whatever, I blush, kind of like I probably am right now. And so, I mean, what's the physiology of that, right? Well, what's happening is the capillaries in my skin are dilating, so they're going from being kind of small to much bigger, right? And that's increasing the blood flow to my face, which you can physically see, right? Like you can see that blood in my face as a blush, right? Well, that is my mind literally driving my physiology, right? And, and I think it's really helpful because people will sort of hear, you know, mind-body connection or things like that, and it seems very sort of hand-wavy or kind of new-agey, right? But, I mean, I mean it in like a very sort of like practical physiologic sense. And so for a lot of things, the more you can start to, to use your words, experience this without becoming sort of a part of it, the better, right? Because then all of these things, they don't, they don't, you don't, you don't keep track in your body. You just notice it and then move on. And I think what's really, what's interesting to me is how many, how many of the conditions that I treat are really driven by that, right? Or, or if they're not directly driven by it, are heavily influenced by it, right? So it goes from something that's very difficult to manage because it's constantly changing up here to something that's very it's relatively easy to manage. And I think that's actually one of the key pieces of this is mastering these skills does not make whatever the condition is go away. It makes it manageable, right? And that I think is actually sort of the big shift that people, that, that I try and get people to is, I can't take this away from you often, right? I mean, if it's a ear infection, yeah, I can take that away. But for a lot of these other things, I can't take it away, but I can get it from something that is totally dominating your life to something that is, again, a part of you. This is integral to what you were sort of talking about is how do you get it to not consuming you, but being, yeah, but, but, but it's a part of you, right? I mean, you, you got to acknowledge that, but it's not, it's not all of your identity. It's not stopping you from functioning. We have time for uh, one last really good question. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> I just want to say that. Then, then I do want to do a, a short meditation. Uh, so we have a we have a, like a five minute question and answer period here. All right, you're on. I don't quite know how to ask it, so maybe it's not the best question in the world. Um, but it's about. I found it really interesting what you said about, is it Bear Meadow? Bear Skin Meadow. Bear Skin Meadow yeah. being this perfect place and it's the way that the world should be. Um, as someone with a significant set of disabilities yep. that are invisible. So I understand what you're saying. And it's it also feels hard when I, like I'm a resilient person. Mm -hmm. I try to tell myself positive stories. Mm -hmm. But then bumping up against the structures of society mm -hmm. that aren't like Bearskin Meadow, mm -hmm. that's the hard part. Um, and that's when there's this sort of big fluctuation in what I can be like when I'm at home or when I'm with friends or, thing, or here with th doing things like that mm -hmm. as opposed to when 
I bump up against these huge structures which don't want to acknowledge me as a person because I have disabilities. So I know that's not really a question, but Mm -hmm. I was hoping maybe you could address that because I think there's sort of like the perfect mode that we can talk about, Mm -hmm. but then there's also realistic mode, which for me is is really big. Yeah. Uh, Well, so so yes, and I I would... I, I, I should not imply that bare skin is perfect. <laughs> oh, boy. Like, let me just talk about what went wrong last summer, right? Um, and I, I think... So I think that we were talking just in the break. I think that there's, um, there's kind of two things that I would say to that, right? And I think that the first is, like, you're right. There's, I think that there's, there's just no, you, you can't get around the fact that, that you are going to bump up against things. And I think that part of, part of the reason that I sort of approach it this way is because I can't change that. Nobody can change that. I mean, at least not in one fell swoop, right? We can all be moving towards that, but, but we can't actually, on some level, we can't fix everything, Right. And so I think that the question then becomes, how, how do you navigate those inevitable difficulties that you are going to run into as well as possible, right? Which is very different than you're not going to run into them. And I think that it is going to stink. And I, I can't actually, I mean, I, I think on, on some level, I can't, I, 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 I can't pretend otherwise, right? And you are going to run into these things that are going to be a pain. And they shouldn't be that way. But they are. And so I think that, that that to me then becomes much more of the question is how do you navigate those difficult, annoying structures that are not doing what they should be doing, right? And so then the other thing that we were sort of talking about is that, um, again, I'm giving credit to my wife on this one, but she has this saying that I have stolen, that she stole, that I've stolen. So it's, you know, feel free to steal yourself of, um, of, of, Suffering and bonus suffering, right? So suffering is having these disabilities or having these health conditions or having whatever these problems are, right? And we all have them. Like, don't think, <laughs> you, do you know what I mean? And I think that that's actually an important thing to acknowledge is that everybody here has something, right? Just by nature of being born, like you've got something. And so we have these things and they're difficult. And we don't actually have a choice about that. But what we do have a choice about is what we put on top of that. So the, and this is, this is sort of what we call, so the, the suffering is having it, right? And the bonus suffering is what you put on top of it, right? So, so when you run into these difficulties, do you come home and stew on it for three days? Because that's something you have the choice about whether you're, you're going to hold on to it or whether you're going to let go of it, right? Yeah. So, so let's say you're not, and I'm not the person who's used on it for the day, yeah. but I'm a person who has such extreme exhaustion from bumping up against that structural issue right. that I can't leave the house for three days or a week or do much of anything. And right. then there's the isolation that you're talking about. Right. Right? So, that, so, so I totally get like the second arrow. Right. But it's, it's, there's, there's like a real physiological Right. 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 Well, and, and, I, and I think for actually not just certain, I think for most, right? I mean, so if you, you know, if you take, 
and I'm trying to think of one that doesn't have a lot of it. But uh, but I think that that most most do, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I I, I think that there's there's lots of ways that sort of that second arrow piece has been taken, and and I don't know. I mean, I, I, on some level, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is, except that's that's what it is, right? Um, yeah, I don't know if that was. A, anyone else have better ideas about how to answer that? Because I think it's a great question. Yeah. I guess the only real like advice I have in this situation is maybe fake it till you make it type of scenario, where you just kind of put on the smile, put on the, the happy face, and eventually your body will start reacting to that as if you actually are happy. Yeah. <laughs> I have the same issue, and and I I recently just came to realize that. It really is all about the narrative that you tell yourself about it. Right. So for me, I really had to realize that, you know, I'm engaging in self-care. Mm-hmm. I'm taking care of myself. Which, if I do that, I'm going to be a dharma practitioner. I'm going to be a healthier, healthier singer than me. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it really, it, it's like you said, it's hard, but it really is about what narrative you're choosing to tell yourself and being willing to, to accept that, you know, there are limitations that I have to work within, but, you know, and then, and then really kind of, for me, I bring it back to my Dharma practice about, you know, bring it back to this precious life and all of that. So. Yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head, Marie, with... Um, If you find yourself having to take time out, you say three days, and my interpretation is that y- you find that unacceptable, taking three days for yourself to kind of recharge. If you need to recharge, you need to recharge and accept that, and that creates some space around physiologically what you need to do to rebalance and retune. And if you don't fight against that, then in time, I would think that that might become less of an issue. And um, you can start reframing it as long as you accept the fact that you're um, highly sensitive and for your nervous system, you need to do these things, then you do it. And like... Don't put a negative spin on it. Oh, I shouldn't be this way, and I can't. You know, we, we do ourselves more damage when when we're telling ourselves how we're feeling and what we need is completely wrong. And so, if you can just go with it and accept it, you might find that as time goes on, you don't need quite as much time because you've allowed yourself some healing time. You know, he's talking about healing. I don't think there's anything wrong with having to take time out to recharge. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, this is why you knew Sangha, right? <laughs> but I, I, one of the things that I, I do talk about a lot is that um, if that's sort of, if that's what you need, then that's what you need, right? And I think sometimes what's tricky, you know, about the second arrow piece that you're alluding to is we often don't even recognize what the second arrow is that we're shooting ourselves with. And so maybe, maybe in this situation, the question is to sort of think about that more, 
and to think about maybe, <clears throat> you know, I know that I need this, but I am still beating myself up for needing this. And maybe that's more of the, more of sort of the alley to, to think about. We have to stop here, but uh, the, the good news is that it looks like we have enough momentum to have another talk discussion in the future. Yeah, but I want to give some space to uh, silent presence. So uh, the best meditation is the one you actually do. Uh, but it, it probably will involve, at least in our tradition, um, being present to whatever is going on. So we'll just have a few minutes. I really appreciate the talk and discussion today. And after this, we'll, close, we'll do closing prayers and dedication. This has been a Lion's Roar Dharma Center recording. For more information, visit lionsroardharmacenter.org.